Welcome to KXE. Let me add my welcome to Lois's uh, from earlier. If you've joined the church just over the last couple of weeks, maybe throughout August, you're checking out different churches just to say hi. And my name's Pete. I'm part of the staff team uh, here at KXE. And last week, John Carter kicked us off on a new teaching series in the book of Philippians. Uh, and it's really, really exciting. I think we're hoping as a church to get stuck into this letter, so really to dive deep into scripture and to, to, to let scripture just speak to us. So we want to get a hold of Philippians over this time. We want to get a hold of Jesus. We want to discover him afresh, you know, that he'd make himself uh, uh, real to us and his grace over our lives, real to us afresh over this month uh, through to the beginning of September. But also I think my like prayer running through it all is that we'd, we'd, we'd capture and recapture a love of scripture again, just more widely, almost just, le- just to be allowing it to be a, a voice in our life and that we can really feed on it every single day and as a process encounter the living and risen Jesus um, through it. So I think those are the sort of things we're hoping for. So the invitation as we go through the series is to join in with us. It's to read it with us, read it each week, the passages um, being preached on, and just let it soak over you. I think it's particularly true of the passage of today. If you haven't read it in the build-up today, then read it, read it when you go home. So just take my words for it, let it soak um, and, and soak over you. Uh, so we're, we're in Philippians, and the context of Philippians um, is it's this letter that Paul, who was Saul, encountered Jesus in an extraordinary way later became Paul, um, and he was this extraordinary sort of church planter across the whole of the known world at that time, um, and one of the churches he planted was in Philippi. Uh, and uh, John, if you want to hear about that, that founding story of the, Philippi, the church at Philippi, listen back to John's talk from last week. It was absolutely brilliant, giving us the context for all of that. Um, so he, he's planted this church, but then he's carried on on his missionary journeys, and where we pick up the stories, he's in prison in Rome. So this is about 60 or 62 AD, um, and it's, so it's basically right towards the end of his life. And he's in prison in Rome, and that's basically not a good thing. Uh, you, not only does he's in prison, but because prison in Rome meant essentially you're on your way to death. So that would have been a very, very present and near possible reality for him. He was having to contemplate death. And uh, the reason he's writing this letter is because a guy called Epaphroditus... Yeah, that is his name, so I thought I'd got it wrong. Epaphroditus uh, has traveled from Philippi, uh, this church, this community that they, they love Paul, and he, they travels all these hundreds and hundreds of miles down to Rome to give him food and, and, and a financial gift and all that sort of stuff to help him survive the, the, the jail in Rome. So he's writing from this prison, and he's basically sending this letter back with Epaphroditus back to the church at Philippi. Um, and Philippi is a Roman colony. That's one of the key things you need to know about it. Essentially, we're part of the Roman Empire at this point. Um, and, and Philippi is an outpost. It's, it's, it's Rome away from Rome. It looked, smelt, sounded like Rome in culture and in, well, in everything. It sounded and looked and smelt like Rome. So those are the sort of contextual bits. I'll give you one little bit later on, a bit of a teaser. Um, uh, but what we... We're going to chapter 2 today, but I just want to quick recap of chapter 1, because I think it's worth doing. What we find in chapter 1 is a man, Paul, who's able and expresses and and describes a sense of uh, freedom, that he is experiencing freedom whilst in chains, literal chains in the inner cell of a prison. We find a man who's able to experience freedom despite being physically, literally in chains. 
Uh, and not only that, but he writes these and the other prison letters from prison, and we're all experiencing freedom. There's this huge sort of juxtaposition, right, and this tension in the kingdom of God that he's in chains and he's, he's captive, and yet the gospel is not, and the truth of Jesus is not, and it's, and it's flying around the, the Roman Empire, and it's with us here today in King's Cross, bringing us freedom, all from this place of chains. It's amazing uh, bloke who, who's got this amazing relationship with Jesus and he's able to be joyful whilst in pain, like physically in a lot of pain after being beaten and dragged before, before courts and into public squares and humiliated and all of that sort of stuff. Somehow he's able to experience joy in the midst of all of that, even though he's facing death. How is it that we find a man who's like that and able to write these sort of things and be these sort of things? He's able to say to live his Christ and to die his gain. And that wasn't a theory. He was facing it. How do we find someone who's able to say things like that and be like that and act like that? And the answer John left us with last week was these two circles. It's a really visual image of what's going on here. Essentially, he's able to be like that because his life centered on Jesus. We've really got a simple choice. Like our life either centers on Jesus or it centers on someone or something else. And for all of us right now, we're in that situation. That's a live situation for us. Does our life center on Jesus or on someone or something else? And the thing is, if it, if it centers on someone or something else, then our worship, our hope, our faith levels, our contentment levels, our satisfaction levels will always be, uh, have a cap, have a ceiling, have a context to them. So if we base our, our, our worth on our success in life, let's say, then whenever we experience failure... That's a context onto our worship. We, we, it, it, it provides a ceiling to our worship because things aren't going right, and so our worship suffers. And so really what we're, what we're asking here is, is Jesus the context for your life? Is your life the context for Jesus? Do you see Jesus in your worship of him, your satisfaction in life, through the lens of your life and how it is going, through the circumstances you're in, or do you see the circumstances you're in through the lens of Jesus Christ? That's what we're carrying through from chapter one. That's the challenge that John laid down before us. And the answer for Paul, as much as we know it through his letters, is it was centered on Jesus. And that meant he can be free whilst in chains. He can be, have joy whilst in pain. So that's what's carrying forward from chapter one. And then I just want to give you the very direct lit, like literary context. for what, if That was the sort of context of Philippi, what we're about to have read to us by Yoss. Uh, this is the context of that. So just at the end of chapter one, he, he says this amazing thing, that whatever happens, whatever happens, whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever is going on in your life, there'll be good times and bad. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's directly before it. So remember, this is a letter to a group of people. They're reading it out in Lydia's front room. And so it's reading as one, right? So that's the last thing ringing in their ears before we have the passage you're about to have read to us. And the other side of the passage is two examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus of people who have lived like Christ. And so are good Christ-like examples, right? So just before, we've got whatever happens, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then just after it is two examples of people who've done that. And so right sandwiched in between there is what we're about to hear. And it's all about Jesus. The first bit, right, is conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, what's that? And the second one is examples of that living out. So this is the bit in the bit in the middle. This is the filling in the sandwich. It's all about Jesus. And I just want to give you a heads up. 
the, the talk I'm going to give today is a bit different from what I normally give, and it's not going to be full of sort of application stuff at the end. It's basically going to be about Jesus and the hymn that's at the heart of this passage, and then we're going to worship at the end. So if that's all right, you, Yoss, if you want to come on up, um, let's give Yoss a cap. It's always a bit nerve-wracking coming to read. Uh, I'm going to put it on the screen. Do I get a Bible? Okay, okay, no, 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 no. Okay. Don't read that. That's a different version. Okay. Gosh, it's so small. My eyesight is terrible. Is that right? Yeah, I'll try. Okay. Um, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, Yoss. Let's just reconnect this thing. Just allow the words of scripture to soak over you. Are we there? Yeah, okay, great, great, great. Thank you, Yoss. Really, really appreciate it. Okay, so that's the passage. And what I want to do, I just want to talk, before I go into detail, we're going to get into the Greek words and all that sort of stuff. Before we get into that, I just want to give you the sort of block-by-block overview. And I've sort of broken it down into two sections, gold and silver. Um, And the first bit, so remember, the thing ringing in your ears is uh, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, no matter what happens. Whatever happens, live your, your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so as he moves into this passage, what he's basically doing is he's expanding. He's, he's padding that out for us to explain a little bit of what that looks like. So um, the beginning there is actually a rhetorical question. Uh, it's not if you have an encouragement for being united with Christ. It's you have encouragement of being united with Christ. But skip through to um, verse 2. So if this is true, if your union with Christ is true, then make my joy complete by being like-minded as a community, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What does it look like to act, whatever happens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? What he's saying in the context that they're in, it looks something, it has something to do with being unified, serving each other, being self-sacrificing, pouring yourself out for one another, being a, 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 a one group heading in one direction. That's something about it, what it looks like. And then if you get to verse five, so if, if that was the instruction, then you've got like, oh, well, this is what it looks like. And then in verse five, it's like, well, how do we do that? You can almost hear people asking him. He's answering questions that haven't been asked silently. And he says, in your relationships with one another, verse five, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. 
the instructions, live, a man, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does it look like? Something about being unified and self-sacrificing and serving each other and pouring yourself out for one another. Well, how do we do that? Well, be more like Jesus. Have the mindset, the understanding, the posture towards others and yourself that Jesus had. So the inevitable question is, well, what was he like? Right? That's almost like the inevitable next question. And the grey is the answer to that question. And what he does here is he, he changes gears. Writing a letter, right, to these guys. Um, and at this point, when he's answering the question, well, what is Jesus like? If they're to have the mind of Jesus, what is Jesus like? He breaks into poetry. He breaks into song. This is either, um, this either a, a hymn that he has written or he's actually quoting one. It, in which case, it is about the earliest hymn that we have, this exalting Jesus. We just sang that earlier, I exalt thee. Well, that's what is happening here. He's in a letter, but when it gets to, well, what was Jesus like? He can't help but turn to poetry and to hymn and to song and to worship. There's something beautiful about that. And so... Um, what we're going to do is we're going to really, the, the main course, if you like, we're going to get into that hymn and we're just going to get into it because it's an extraordinary passage of scripture. Um, but to really get to understand it, we're going to have to understand something of the, of the sort of context that uh, he's writing into that. This is a pretty key thing. And the, the main thing that we need to know, um, the driving force in Philippi of Roman culture was an honor-shame culture, an honor-shame culture. Whenever I was reading about this, um, uh, reading the historians, reading the academic theologians on all of this, they were basically like, and that, that doesn't exist in the UK. We wouldn't understand that. And obviously, we all know it exists in other places. But I can't help it. Just something came to mind. I was like, I don't know. I felt, I felt a little bit of shame in the past. Uh, over here. So um, here's our pastor, Pete Hughes, in California right now, enjoying himself. Um, this is him just uh, gramming uh, before the weekend away that we've just had in January. So this is him writing uh, just literally, I think, the day of the thing. He says, hey, KX Church. That's you guys. How nice of him. Just reaching out. For those joining us later today or tomorrow for our weekend away, praying you have a great day and safe travels later. Oh, such a pastor, isn't he? Such a pastor. It's so lovely. Just looks like he's being kind. Uh, believe in God has amazing things in store for us over the weekend, including a whole load of fun. So that's going to be good. Uh, but don't be late like Pete WJ 1986, that's me, yours truly, was two years ago. And then we've got a video on the left there um, and over a thousand views of that video. Uh, oh, no, don't go there yet. Don't go there yet. Just to give some context to the video. Okay, any of you recognize and have watched this video? Shame on you. You're all part, you're all part of the bully culture that I've experienced as part of this church. Uh, what we have here, just to give you some context, if you've never been to KC Weekend Away, is there's a Saturday night, and there's a lot of fun on a Saturday night, basically involving bandioki and people embarrassing themselves. On this occasion, now, I don't love um, the stage, I don't love dancing, but there we are as Backstreet Boys, um, dressed up, all in white. John Carter has a Morrison's butcher's hat as well, just to go with it. Um, but I'm there on the right. What you need to know is we practiced for hours for this. This wasn't unrehearsed. It wasn't like this was the first time that we did this. We practiced for hours. We went out to a side room even just before we came on, and Pete Hughes gave us a pep talk. He's like, guys, don't screw up the jump. Don't screw up the jump. Cue the video if you want to see it. Right, just one more time. One more, go on then, if you really want it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, yeah, so when I got home, someone had turned it into a GIF, which is kind, just to exacerbate the shame culture that we've got at KAC. And there it is, just on repeat. Good. Good. So, if that doesn't entice you to the weekend away this year, then I don't know what will. Now, obviously, I'm joking, uh, and honor shame culture is obviously not something to be joked about in its real form. So, let's turn to the honor shame culture of Philippi. Um, the thing we need to know about this is essentially what this means is that the greatest thing, the best thing, that's just brutal. That's brutal. Should never have put this in the hand of John Carter. Uh, what you need to know about honor shame culture is that the, the very best thing that you could have in life was honor. You, your family, the best thing you could have was honor, and the worst thing you could have was shame. For, for your reputation, your name to have shame attached to it, or your family's, that was the best and the worst thing that could possibly uh, go on. And that meant that it was so saturated in it in the society at the time that the most celebrated leaders of the time, people like Alexander the Great, a couple of hundred years beforehand, but he'd completely taken over the known world um, in his late 20s into his early 30s, and, and he dominated everyone, had crushed everyone to the point of essentially achieving divine status essentially achieving worship and, and fear and just was so, so um, powerful and authoritative and accumulated so much wealth and influence that he was held up as a divine figure. This, this um, celebrated leader, king, ruler of the day. And then you've got, in the direct context, Emperor Augustus, who basically um, done what no one had been able to do before and turned the Roman uh, Republic into a Roman Empire, and it's basically conquered the known world as well. Um, and so these are the, these are the kinds of people that they they just, what they're essentially celebrating is is achieving that kind of honor and status through the crushing of people. They they'd got there and they'd got power to the point they were unparalleled and therefore held up as divine through the crushing of people. And that is who people wanted to grow up to be like. That is who was most celebrated in their day. And so what you basically find is this celebrated journey of being of man to divine. Of man to divine. The accumulation of power and status and wealth and honor to the point that you're held up as divine and therefore subjects of worship. They even have something called the Cursus Honorum. It's the course of honor and it's all written out. And if you read it, if you do this sort of thing of Julius Caesar's, you can see his course of honor or Augustus's course of honor. And it was essentially all the steps you needed to take the next rung on the ladder, the next stair up the staircase towards honor. Keep going, keep going. More honor, more honor, more honor. And at the bottom of the pile would have been the slaves and the servants. No honor at all. All shame in that society. You had to get to the top to be able to rule over others. Uh, And so that is the direct context into which Paul is writing. That is what the church at Philippi are completely immersed in and surrounded by. That's the model of leadership, the model of kingship, the model of rulership. Uh, That is what it means to be honorable, to have ascended to those heights. So with that in mind, he writes this hymn. I just want to, like, this is a totally extraordinary piece of writing, and I probably won't do it justice, and won't do it justice, but it is a totally extraordinary piece of writing. And I just want to um, pick my way through it, basically, if that's all right with you, so that we, we can really get to understand it. Are you up for that? We're going to get into it in a little bit of depth. Feeling warm? Feeling okay? Okay, we're good. Okay, come on. Let's do this. Okay, first line. Who? Okay, so... Um, 
How do we do this? Well, um, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. In, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, pause, who, being in very nature God, a lot of the translations will say, who was in the form of God, who was in the form of God. And essentially what's going on here, the word being there is a past participle. But essentially what that means is it is past. It, that's why some people say was. But it's, part, it, it's, it's continuous tense. And so what is actually... So, who being in the very nature God, more faith they, that's what's going on there. Who was, continuous, continues to be, essentially who was and is and will always be in very nature or very essence God. Who was before anything else was, before he was Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity was... In very nature, God is, as he was found amongst you, the very nature God and will always be the very nature God. Is that cool? We're there. So this is, just remember, we've established the divinity of Jesus, at least the Christians we have. Um, But like in then, this was a huge moment. Jesus is divine. He was equal to God. So we get on to that next, right? So who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. So there he is, who has always been, is, and will always be in very nature God, but did not use that equality with God for his own sake, to benefit himself for his own advantage. The actual Greek word there is harpagmon, which is the word they would use for robbery. Who, 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 who did not consider his equality, his status, his honor, his glory to, as, as God, something to use to rob others, to exploit others for his own advantage. And in there, it's essentially a direct contrast to Genesis 3, uh, where, where Adam, Adam, who, and this is the tragedy of it, is made in the image of God. And so he's already been given and shared, God has shared his authority with him. He's already got that, and yet he still reaches for the fruit. That's the real tragedy. He was actually already made in the image of God and had the authority of God shared with him. Uh, but Jesus, it's a direct contrast to that. And we see other, other places in scripture where, it's scripture where he's called the new Adam reversing the effects of what Adam had done. And so whilst Adam grasps at being God, Jesus is God and yet does not exploit his godness for his own advantage. Uh, uh, And also it's in contrast, right, to, um, who are those two guys? Augustus uh, and Alexander the Great. But also if you remember from from, um, Philippians 1, there's the example when the church is established of the master who has the slave girl with the spirit who can prophesy and he exploits her for his own advantage. And that's what it looks like to basically um, use what you've got for your own gain and it robs others of life. But this Jesus, this person that I'm actually currently singing about, who in very nature God always has been and always will be, did not use that equality, that status, that honor, that glory for his own sake or take advantage of others with it, but instead did what? He rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He didn't use it for himself. He didn't exploit others. No, 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 no. He poured, that's echinosen is the word there, kenosis. He emptied himself. Imagine just taking a glass and just pouring it out. That's kenosis. He empties himself out by taking the very nature of a servant, pours himself out on us. On this world, taking the very nature of a servant. Now, remember at that beginning bit, who in being very nature, more faith, they, being very nature, God, 
now takes the form of a servant, Morphe Dulu. Morphe Dulu. Paul's doing that very deliberately. The Morphe Theu, the form of God, pours himself out for you and I in total humility, taking on the form of a servant. Actually, it's slave, is the word. Being made in human likeness. And then it goes to the final depths. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So his Jesus, who was and is and will always be in very nature God, has all the honor and glory and status, but he didn't use it for himself. He poured himself out for us. Morphe Theu becomes Morphe Dulu. And yet in life he was humbled. In life he went to the lowest possible place he could go. And then in death he went even further. Because in a Roman society, that's why he says, even death on a cross Because death on a cross, the crucifixion, was the most shameful death that you could experience in a Roman society. It was was actually illegal for you to crucify a Roman citizen. They felt like if you were a citizen of Rome, you deserved at least not that. Unless you commit a treason, in which case you're giving up your Roman citizenship and so you could have a crucifixion. But like the, the, the point being that this was like the lowest of the lows of the death. And so here into this culture that I just described where honor is everything and shame is the last thing you want. Here Paul, in this hymn, as he comes to describe Jesus, just bursts into song and describes this journey down, down, down. To the posture of a servant and the death that was the most shameful death possible. What is going on here? Remember this image that what was celebrated in the culture was the journey from man to divine, achieving as much honor and status as he could, essentially celebrating the crushing of others on the way. Well, the thing that we're being we're celebrating here in Jesus, right, is the journey from divine to man, not giving up divine, I'll come to that in a second, but stepping down into and humbling himself, pouring himself out for you and I, taking the opposite journey. So you're reading this, it's like, wow, this is everything the culture says is shameful. And yet Jesus is traveling that trajectory. You remember this image, the course of honor from servant to ruler. That was every child's hope. Every person's ambition was to climb was to ascend, was to reach the heights. And yet what we find here is Jesus redefining the course of honor. He comes down towards the posture of a servant. All the celebrated leaders, everyone held up as enviable, had ascended. And here we are with Paul writing this hymn, celebrating Jesus descending to us. And the thing we've got to grasp with all of this is that on that journey, he didn't become less Morphe Theu, less God, less divine. In fact, in taking that journey, and this is what Paul is desperately trying to get across, is that was him most expressing his divinity. That was him being most like God. Not giving it up, not emptying himself up of his divinity, but inhabiting it and becoming most God-like in terms of this is what our God looks like. This is what this hymn is trying to do. Paint a picture of what God looks like. N.T. Wright puts it better than anyone else I read. The decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience, and that's a whole other talk. Let's do that another time. But all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation. Yes, all the way to the cross. This decision was not a decision to stop being divine. 
It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. His progression through incarnation, his being with us to death must be seen, not as something which required him, as it were, to stop being God for a while, but as the perfect self-expressing of the true God. God is an entirely free to be who he wants to be. God could have looked like anything. God could have looked like Augustus or Alexander or Nero. But God freely self-chose to not be that kind of God. He chose to be this kind of God. And that's why we read in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was and is and is to come and will always be the visible image of the invisible God. We have a gift amongst us. Walking amongst us, it's the visible image of an invisible God. If you want to know what God looks like, if you're here questioning faith and what life is all about, if you have misconceptions about the Christian faith, you look at Jesus, you read this hymn, and you discover what God looks like. He looks like the God who stepped down from all of that status and honor and divineness to step into our mess. The culture is celebrating Ascension, rising, crushing. What Paul is celebrating is descending, is lowering, of humbling, of service, of self-pouring out. Why? For us. Because he's moved by compassion for each and every single one of us. He moved towards us in that way. And then in this amazing final twist in this hymn, given everything I've just said, where we land next is here. So he's descended all the way down. The reverse of the course of honor gets right to the bottom, the posture of a servant. The death that was so shameful, it was a swear word in the culture in which they were in. And then what happens? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's reached in cultural terms the lowest of the low. He's at the bottom, and yet in that moment, and this is basically the gospel, he dies, is resurrected, and he ascends to heaven, and he is given the name above all names. Essentially, he's honored. This is how he redefines honor. They thought honor looked like this, and then in service and outpouring of self, he then becomes honored by God with the name above all names and quotes Isaiah 45, 23 directly. And Isaiah 45, 23 is a really powerful text where God, Yahweh, um, the name of God in the Old Testament, basically declares himself as the one true God, eventually uh, to whom every knee will bow. And so in this moment where he's established the pre-existence and equality of Jesus with God at the beginning, he then does it again at the end. says, no, before Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every time we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, and this is about the most explosive thing he could have possibly said, the most explosive thing they could possibly have sung. Because the word for Lord there is Kyrios. It's in capitals because it's the translation of Yahweh, which is the name in the Old Testament for God. that They couldn't say his name, Yahweh, with all of the vowels. So it was Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. This is the Greek translation of Yahweh, Jesus Christ is Lord. But the reason it's really, really explosive is because it was also the name for the emperor. So the slogan of the empire that Nero is now the ruler of was Ha Kyrios Nero. Ha Kyrios Nero. Nero is Lord. And here is a Roman citizen, Paul, 
in a Roman prison, surrounded by Roman centurions in Rome, under the oversight of the emperor, writing a letter in chains to a Roman colony saying that Jesus Christ is Lord, not because he crushed his way to the top to achieve honor, because he came to the very bottom to serve and pour himself out for you and I. That makes Jesus Lord over all. At one point, every knee will bow at that name. And so he's sending this letter with Epaphroditus, and I feel for the guy, because if he's read it, if he knows what's in it, he's going to be carrying it trembling the entire hundreds and hundreds of miles, because in this thing is this thing that will get him killed. This statement that will get him killed, and it's taken to this little house, and it's a hymn, the invitation surely being, join with me in singing this, that Jesus Christ is Lord over everything. Why? Because he humbled himself and poured himself out, became morphe duly for you and I. Went to the cross for you and I. He died that we might live. He emptied himself that we might be full. And that makes him Lord. It's a totally extraordinary and explosive uh, statement. And I love to think of that church singing that in the context that they're in. And so that's the hymn at the very bottom. Is it any wonder then, think context of what's been asked of them here, to live a life no matter what has happened or whatever does happen in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Is it any wonder that what that looks like is what we read here? Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, the same posture, the same heart towards this world as Jesus did. And really, that's it. That's all I really want to say today. John left us with an image last week of two circles. Do you want your life to be centered on Jesus or do you want it to be centered on yourself or someone or something else? I've explained the challenges of that. I want to leave you with this image. I think it's two responses to what I've said today. One is worship and we're about to do it. That's what we're going to respond with today. It's an extraordinary... Are we all right with this? It's an extraordinary passage worthy of worship. So that's why we're going to worship today. Um, but also I think there's a second challenge. It's like, does your life look like an ascending staircase, an ascending ladder? Or does it look like a descending one? Do you use whatever status or honor or position or resources or whatever you have in this world to advance your own life, to climb up? Or do you, use it to em- do you empty it out on your friends and those around you and the world around you? taking the posture of a servant. It's a huge challenge to have the same mindset, the same heart, the same posture as Jesus Christ towards yourselves and towards this world. It's huge. The first response is worship, and then I'm just going to let the, 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 the rest take place. So Amy and, the, and any of the band who want to come up and lead us in this. Should we, should we stand?